One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know, Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mobile, Alabama, 1976. A hard-working film crew was busy setting up for their next shot. It was a nighttime shoot. On this film, they were all nighttime shoots. Bleary-eyed, the workers set up lights, moved equipment, and drank cold coffee to keep themselves awake. From the far edge of the set, someone shouted, What is that? The rest of the crew came running over in time to see a black disc hovering over them. Someone had the presence of mind to ask, does anyone know where Stephen is? As they stared at the object, levitating, unearthly and inexplicable, a shaggy-haired young man ran up to the crew and asked them what was going on. Someone pointed to the sky. The young man looked up, but it was too late. The object was gone. The young man shook his head, disappointed, and called everyone back to work. They had a job to do. Steven Spielberg began setting up the next shot for his film. The title? Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. You can find more episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Extraterrestrial for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. And we're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. 
and each story has garnered thousands, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. This is our first episode on Hollywood and UFOs. Since the dawn of cinema, filmmakers have explored the possibility of extraterrestrial life. But according to film historian and ufologist Bruce Rux, these alien flicks weren't just flights of fancy. They were propaganda efforts funded by the government to mislead the public about the truth of UFO sightings. This week, we'll explore the origins of the supposed government conspiracy to deceive America, starting with Orson Welles' infamous War of the Worlds radio broadcast. Then, we'll dig into the schlocky creature features of the 50s and 60s, which Rux claims were meant to make alien conspiracies look laughable, discrediting them. Finally, we'll hear how Spielberg's close encounters of the third kind flipped the script, delivering a serious and possibly true-to-life extraterrestrial narrative. Rux's theory is compelling, partly for the sheer number of examples he produces to back it up. But it rests on a lot of flimsy evidence and leaps of logic. Next week, we'll put it under the microscope. If it's true, does the cinematic conspiracy continue to this day? People often think of the Roswell incident in 1947 as the first major UFO sighting. It's the one that spawned a nationwide hysteria lasting decades and yielding thousands of reports of alien encounters. But nearly a decade earlier, on October 30th, 1938, a jaw-dropping radio report sent shockwaves across America. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods of fire. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. A CBS radio bulletin startled the country. A strange object had crash-landed in New Jersey. Figures had emerged from the craft and begun to attack the state troopers who had arrived on the scene. The report continued intermittently, intercut with normal music programming. It described how bizarre, tentacled creatures were rampaging their way across the country. There were even quotes from top U.S. defense officials who offered advice for staying safe. According to reports the next day, the response was immediate and drastic. Hordes of people gathered for safety in churches. Women prematurely gave birth. The tenants of an apartment building fled into the streets wearing gas masks. As the radio bulletins continued and the news took a turn for the more dramatic, it became clear what was happening. The whole thing was a hoax. It was, of course, a radio drama, an adaptation of War of the Worlds produced and performed by Orson Welles. But the millions of credulous listeners weren't necessarily in on the gag. 
The realistic presentation, with bulletins interrupting music programming, had confused and tricked listeners who had come to trust their radios implicitly. When the prank was revealed, the public's terror was replaced with outrage. Orson Welles held a press conference, apologizing for the hysteria and claiming it was entirely unintended. But to some, his apology rang false. Bruce Rux is among those who find Wells' contrition to be a bit forced. He critiques the press conference as staged, but his doubts run deeper. Rux claims that the whole hoax was part of a larger plot, one dreamed up between Wells and a friend of his, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Orson Welles was a well-documented supporter of FDR and had even received letters from the president thanking him for his campaigning during the last election. Rux believes they had colluded to help throw the public off the scent of the real alien crisis lurking just around the corner. While the initial broadcast convinced audiences that an alien invasion was underway, the reveal of the prank gone wrong ultimately made people more skeptical than they were before. And Wells' talent for media manipulation would, in later years, become the stuff of legend. Besides, Rux's theory would go a long way toward explaining some of the strange behavior Wells exhibited in the hours leading up to the broadcast. Wells' biographer Barbara Leeming states that Wells spent October 30th, the day of the show, in a back and forth with CBS. The network censors were pushing him to make the program more obviously fictional, replacing the names of real locations used in the script with made-up counterparts, for example. Despite the censors' changes to the script, though, Wells apparently spent every minute up until the broadcast making frantic, furious changes to make the show more boring. He lengthened the musical interludes between each fake news bulletin, dragging out the amount of time that audiences had to wait in order to hear more. This added a little suspense, but mostly it just made the wait excruciating and dull and ultimately more realistic, rather than rushing through to the next major development. CBS wanted more drama to capture the listener's interest, something Wells never shied away from in his later career. So why the sudden dedication to realism in this one instance? The War of the Worlds broadcast was effectively training its audience to be skeptical of future alien reports. Rux concedes that the plot may have been only tangentially related to UFOs. Perhaps it was a test run to see how audiences would react to a foreign attack. After all, the war in Europe was escalating and threatened to involve the U.S. But just nine years later, UFOs were back on everyone's mind. Witnesses reported a crash outside Roswell, New Mexico. We discussed the incident more in depth in our Roswell episode, but this encounter ushered in a new era in UFO sightings. It was quickly covered up, and a short while later, the debris of the craft was dismissed by the government as a weather balloon. Could it be that Roosevelt knew about aliens almost a full decade earlier? 
Was he expecting an incident like Roswell and plotting with Wells to preemptively make the public skeptical? If so, the attempt wasn't entirely successful. The Roswell incident caught the public imagination in a big way, and it sparked a new wave of UFO sightings and incidents, including famous abductions like that of Barney and Betty Hill, who described their alien captors in terms consistent with the Roswell sighting. It wasn't just the public who sat up and took notice, though. The U.S. government hastily assembled a panel to study the phenomenon of UFO sightings and address the increase in alien reports. In 1952, on orders from the CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence, the Robertson panel convened. Headed by physicist H.P. Robertson, the panel investigated the various incidents of UFO activity that had been reported and discussed how best to approach the issue. Ostensibly, they were concerned that hysteria over aliens might lead to another War of the Worlds-type panic. But their proposal for how to address the issue was extreme. The final report remained classified until 1978. In its conclusion, the panel stated that the government should conduct a program of education in which they publicly debunked UFO reports and trained the audience out of their gullibility, not unlike what Orson Welles had done 15 years prior. But the scale of their solution seems at odds with the relatively small problem they were facing. None of the sightings since Roswell had come anywhere close to causing the problems that the famous radio broadcast did. Was a single incident of mass hysteria over a decade prior really justification for an all-out propaganda battle against UFO misinformation? Rux proposes that they weren't trying to prevent Americans from being deceived by alien reports. Just the opposite. They wanted to stop the public from figuring out the truth that they knew about UFOs, had been housing aliens in secret facilities, and feared an oncoming conflict. That would justify their recommendation for an all-out messaging war against UFO sightings. The panel proposed some serious measures. They suggested consulting with psychologists and advertising experts on the best way to persuade audiences and they advised the use of mass media, advertising, business clubs, schools, and even the Disney Corporation to get the message across. So it seems, to keep the public from learning what was really happening, they would have to turn to their most powerful tool, the movies. Next, we'll examine the core premise of Bruce Rux's theory that the government launched a campaign of schlocky B-movies in the hopes of making audiences laugh at, rather than believe in, the alien conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. 
Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to our story. In the early 1950s, the U.S. government convened a panel of experts to head off a potential mass hysteria over UFO sightings. The so-called Robertson Panel advised a program of mass debunking in order to show Americans how all of these sightings were made up. Or, if you believe film historian and ufologist Bruce Rux, the plan was to use lowbrow science fiction films to make the public think aliens were a ridiculous fantasy, when, in fact, they were real. Much of Bruce Rux's argument about the government's attempts to sway public opinion and his confidence that top officials did indeed know about aliens comes from specific Hollywood films. They're brimming with scenes and details that echo famous abduction stories, but often were released before those abductions became public knowledge. Rux's theory about aliens has one major caveat. Many of the films he references feature robotic visitors from space rather than flesh and blood ones. According to him, the real alien sightings witnesses have reported, going back to Roswell, aren't exactly aliens at all. They're robots. Rux believes alien visitors are actually robot scouts sent by an alien race. In his opinion, this ties everything together in various accounts of alien abductions, from their inhumanly gray color, metal of course, to their frequent imperviousness to human weapons. In one famous 1955 encounter known as the Hopkinsville Goblins sighting, a farmhouse in a small Kentucky town was reportedly besieged by small gray creatures. When the inhabitants of the home fired at the creatures, they reported a metallic clanking sound, like bullets bouncing off a metal surface. The movies also reflect this possibility, most famously in the sci-fi classic, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Released in 1951, the original film depicts a visit from an alien spacecraft. An alien named Klaatu comes with a message of peace, but is almost immediately shot by a scared bystander. In recovery, Klaatu attempts to arrange a meeting of world leaders, promising to help unite the planet, if only they can all agree on the terms of the meeting. Naturally, the world leaders fail disastrously in this effort. Soon after, Klaatu is ambushed by the military and killed. It's at this point that Klaatu's robot servant, Gort, steps in. After nearly destroying humanity, Gort takes Klaatu back aboard their ship and revives him. Klaatu leaves with a word of warning to Earth. 
pursue your present course and face obliteration. The Day the Earth Stood Still was not some cheapy B-movie. It was a major Hollywood production approved by Fox studio head Daryl F. Zanuck, known for producing prestigious A-list pictures like The Grapes of Wrath and All About Eve. Rux points to this aberration in Zanuck's career as evidence of outside influence, perhaps a high-level government attempt to insert real alien narratives into Hollywood cinema. He points to the robot Gort, of course, who reflects Rux's own theory about the true nature of alien visitors. And the other tropes deployed by the movie, the flying saucer, the alien commingling with humans, and even an abduction, all seem to rely on abduction tropes that wouldn't become common for a few more years. After all, the day the Earth stood still preceded the Barney and Betty Hill abduction by a full decade, and yet shares several common elements with their story. For example, Gort carries a woman onto Klaatu's spaceship, just as Betty described being carried aboard a UFO. The alien also has advanced scientific knowledge and technology, just as the Hills described. In short, the day the Earth stood still featured many typical elements of abduction stories, but years before they would become known tropes. Of course, it's just as likely that the stories of these films inspired later abductees to make their stories up. But unlike the day the Earth stood still, the majority of alien pictures weren't prestige efforts. Rux's theory mostly focuses on cheesy B-movies like those directed by Roger Corman. Rux points out Corman's own history with the government, a former Navy trainee who could theoretically have come into contact with intelligence services. After his time in the Naval Trainee Program, Corman spent a few years bouncing around Europe and even allegedly engaged in some low-level smuggling. This is the sort of skill set that U.S. intelligence might have found useful, Rux argues, a military background with a talent for covert ops. As with many of Rux's theories, though, that's as far as he gets in terms of evidence. The implication is made, Corman could have had government connections, and so Rux proceeds as if that settles the matter. He becomes a little more persuasive when he examines the movies themselves, however. Rux goes through one B-movie after another, picking apart their strange similarities to real-life cases and showing how, by making the films goofy and implausible, the government was able to convince audiences that real UFO cases were goofy and implausible as well. Take The Day the World Ended, a 1955 Corman film in which a woman in a post-apocalyptic society is haunted by the specter of a creature, one with bulletproof, black, metallic skin and metal claws for hands. Though the film doesn't specifically deal in alien abductions, Rux claims that it lays the groundwork for many abduction stories that came out later. For example, Rux points out the fact that the woman herself isn't afraid of this creature when she's in its presence, similar to the calm many UFO abductees describe having felt around their captors. And she and her male co-star began to feel a strange, inexplicable bond to the creature. These details are common across UFO experiences. 
Rux refers to a 1992 book by David Jacobs called Secret Life. It compiles research drawn from 60 abductee interviews and over 300 case reports. From that, Jacobs creates the portrait of a typical UFO abduction experience. Often abducted from their beds, captives aboard alien ships typically find themselves subjected to a battery of tests. They're examined, usually by a giant, blindingly bright retinal scanner. Then, tissue samples are taken from their blood, hair, skin, or elsewhere. In some cases, abductees are then submerged in a so-called breathing pool. Despite being underwater, the captives report being able to breathe as normal. In Corman's The Day the World Ended, this is reflected in a scene in which the female lead is submerged in a pool with her male co-star, while the creature watches over them. The lead character's sexual chemistry in this scene is noteworthy, too. Jacob's book discusses the frequent sexual experimentation abductees undergo while aboard. Sometimes they're made to have sex with fellow abductees, other times with the aliens themselves. Non-Corman film companies were getting in on the alien stories, too. Maybe they were just capitalizing on the frenzy around Roswell and other abduction tales. Or maybe they were encouraged to make these films, and to make them silly in order to throw off the American public. One of these was the 1956 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Rux's key takeaway from this film, in which shape-shifting aliens replace the population of Earth one by one, is a particular line, they get you when you're asleep. Rux claims that the idea of UFO abductions happening while people were sleeping wouldn't be popularized until the 1980s. Thus, he says, it's unlikely that a screenwriter would have known about the idea unless they were pointed in that direction. It's a tenuous link. A lot of these examples individually require leaps of logic, but taken together, movie after movie, the similarities between these sci-fi films and the real-life abduction stories that were just beginning to come out can be uncanny. And it becomes clear that public perception of aliens was changed by these films. If an individual saw The Day the Earth Stood Still or The Day the World Ended, then heard a real-life abduction story filled with robots and medical exams, they would think, oh, that person is just making up some story like in the movies. If they saw Invasion of the Body Snatchers and then heard a story about aliens abducting people in their sleep, they would think, I've heard this one before. And while Rux doesn't provide a lot of evidence, he does provide a convincing connection between Hollywood and the government, one that suggests there was some kind of shady deal going on behind the scenes. That connection had a name, William J. Bryan Jr. Brian was a licensed medical doctor, but he practiced less than reputable kinds of medicine. From his shop on the Sunset Strip, he administered hypnosis and mind control therapy to a coterie of stars and socialites in mid-century Hollywood. It'd be easy to dismiss Brian as a quack practicing bogus medicine, but his background was startling. 
He was a CIA asset and a key player in two of its most notorious programs, MKUltra and Project Artichoke. MKUltra, which began in 1953, was a clandestine operation where hundreds of unwitting subjects were dosed with LSD. The hallucinogenic drug could be used as a method of mind control, the agency hoped. The other project, Artichoke, was even more targeted. Mind control research was being funneled toward one specific goal, to turn unwitting citizens into potential assassins through the use of drugs and hypnosis. Keep in mind, these aren't rumored projects. These were real operations carried out by the CIA who secretly drugged people, even their own employees. The proof is available in declassified agency reports. In addition to being involved with these projects, William J. Bryan Jr. was an expert hypnotist. Hypnosis comes into play in many UFO abduction cases. Victims often claim that the aliens hypnotized them before taking them aboard their ship. Rux believes that Bryan was working with the CIA to harness this power. But then, in 1962, they sent him to Hollywood to share his expertise with filmmakers. Again, by taking a legitimate element of UFO stories, hypnosis, and introducing it into bad B-movies, the government would make the public even more skeptical of the existence of aliens. After Brian had ingratiated himself with Corman, he was cast playing himself in a movie called Dementia 13. In fact, Brian opened the movie giving an eerie monologue about his experiences as a hypnotist. He brags about consulting on a triple homicide case and his interrogation of the suspect using hypnosis. Hypnosis was made to look campy, the stuff of sci-fi. The mission was achieved. Again, Rux's evidence gets a little spotty. There's no known connection between Brian and UFO research, despite the many actual government inquiries into aliens and flying saucers that have been declassified in recent years. But Brian was definitely involved in shady CIA business, and for Rux, that's enough to suggest that Corman was taking cues from him. And to be fair to Rux, a lot of sci-fi B-movies do use hypnosis as a plot device. According to Rux, these films had intentionally cheesy effects and bad storytelling. Movies like Devil Girl from Mars or Invasion of the Saucermen were trying to garner ridicule from their audiences. This clearly matched up with the mission of the Robertson panel to convince the viewing public that aliens and UFOs weren't real. And what better way to pull that off than to prime audiences to laugh at stories of abduction and invasion? The cheesier the movie, the better. Rux points to Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space, one of the most infamously terrible movies of all time. This film is mostly characterized by absurdly, even incoherently bad dialogue. But suddenly, for one brief moment toward the end of the film, a character, a pilot, delivers a cogent, even stirring monologue. 
In it, he claims that the government has silenced him from speaking out about the alien encounter he had at the start of the film. He uses language that closely mirrors how real pilots have talked about their run-ins with flying saucers or strange lights, right down to the government's suppression of what they saw. It's a badly written movie, but that one moment almost perfectly reflects how pilots, in the decades afterwards, would talk about their UFO encounters. Placed in the middle of an Ed Wood film, however, the audience can hardly be expected to take it seriously. And, Rux proposes, the producers hoped that when the real pilots' accounts finally came out, they would be met with similar disbelief. As the decades wore on, more plausible UFO abduction stories became public knowledge. Valiantly, though they'd tried, the B-movies of the 50s and 60s had failed to dissuade large swaths of the public from believing in aliens. In fact, it was a boom time for alien sightings, with high-profile cases hitting the news regularly. The supposed abduction of Antonio Villas Boas from his farm in 1957, the 1961 alien encounter reported by Barney and Betty Hill, or police officer Lonnie Zamora's pursuit of a UFO in 1964. All of these incidents, and others, made headlines across the country. Cinematic depictions of aliens took a more earnest approach, treating the topic seriously. One movie even managed to get a real government UFO expert behind the scenes advising the production and creating the most realistic account of alien contact yet. Next, we'll hear about the movie that many ufologists consider to be the most accurate of all, made by a young director named Steven Spielberg. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. Now, back to our story. Throughout the 50s and 60s, low-budget production companies churned out one science fiction flick after another, each more ridiculous than the last. But the involvement of government hypnotism researcher William J. Bryan Jr. has led some, including ufologist Bruce Rux, to suspect that the government had its hands in the making of these films. By making silly sci-fi movies, Ruck says the government could make the whole idea of aliens seem laughable. This would calm the hysteria following the Roswell crash and subsequent abduction reports. But in the 70s, a new type of sci-fi film emerged, one that took aliens more seriously. These films used advanced special effects technology to bring abduction stories to life. Released in 1977, Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind was drawn from real-life abduction cases spanning decades. But the film also incorporates some eerie details of UFO encounters that, according to Rux, wouldn't be public knowledge until years after the film's release. For one, 
the aliens and humans in the film use music to connect with one another. Rux claims that the idea of aliens communicating via music was only suggested 15 years later by astronomer Gerald Hawkins. Hawkins observed that crop circles frequently followed patterns that could be mathematically connected to musical scales, and it captures the way that alien abductees tend to be drawn toward one another, showing the two lead characters mysteriously and quickly brought together, as if by some supernatural force. The film represented a larger shift in their strategy for handling UFOs in public. And there was one possible reason for that shift in approach. President Jimmy Carter. According to Bruce Rux, Jimmy Carter pledged $20 million in UFO research while in office. He may have had personal motivations for doing so, based on a report filed in 1973 by Carter himself. On a crisp night in the town of Leary, Georgia, then Governor Jimmy Carter observed a hovering object in the sky above him. From where he stood, it seemed to be about the size of the moon with flashing lights and colors. And as quickly as it had come, it flew away. Carter always maintained that he had seen a UFO. Even three years later, as he ran for president, he vowed then that, if elected, he would release all files on UFO activity to the public. It was a promise he failed to keep upon entering office. He cited defense implications, but Rux claims he then offered the $20 million by way of compromise. $20 million, the exact budget of Spielberg's close encounters of the third kind. Was it possible that Carter's affection for aliens, driven by his life-changing encounter with a UFO in the early 70s, encouraged him to secretly fund Spielberg's film? Lending credence to this idea is another conspiracy theory, a rumored government program known as Project Serpo. According to online reports, supposedly from U.S. defense officials, the United States government engaged in an alien exchange program of sorts throughout the 60s and 70s. After the Roswell crash, 12 trained civilians and scientists were sent to the planet Serpo, home of the Roswell aliens. In 2005, supposed government employees leaked the information online, sparking rounds of debate and discussion over the truth of the matter. However, the evidence is pretty lacking. But the theory sounds very similar to Spielberg's film, in which a group of people, permanently changed by UFO encounters, wind up boarding the mothership and going home with the aliens. Was this a case of hoaxers copying the movie, or the movie revealing a secret conspiracy decades before it went public? Even putting aside the dubious Serpo theory, though, Close Encounters manages to capture the nuances of real-life abduction stories. For example, both characters find themselves harassed by government officials, men in black as they came to be known in the ufology community. Rux dismisses the idea that these are simply repeated points from existing abduction stories. 
he claims that many of these details would have been impossible to know at the time without some inside source. And Spielberg did have that inside source, J. Allen Hynek. Born in 1910 as Halley's Comet shone in the skies above Earth, J. Allen Hynek was raised and educated in Chicago, Illinois. He decided to become an astronomer and eventually earned his PhD in the field. By the time of the Roswell incident, Hynek was a respected scientist. In the immediate aftermath of that media frenzy and the alien reports that followed, Hynek took to the role of debunking these claims. For years, he shot down theory after theory. Eventually, in 1952, the government hired him as a consultant to Project Blue Book, their official foray into the study of UFO sightings. Here, he developed a scale for different types of extraterrestrial encounters, the Close Encounter Scale, which ranked proximity to UFOs and alien life for different reported sightings. The third kind, which factored into the film's title, referred to the sighting of an actual animated figure during an alien experience, whether that was actually an alien or something else. But as more reports flooded in through Project Blue Book, Hynek's confident skepticism wavered. He didn't become a believer overnight, but he opened his mind to the possibility of extraterrestrial life. And throughout the 60s and 70s, he slowly became an icon for the ufology community. Here was a credible scientist, someone who had researched UFOs for the U.S. government, and he was admitting that some of these sightings simply couldn't be waved away. When Hynek learned that director Steven Spielberg, fresh off the success of the massive blockbuster film Jaws, was directing a film named after his Close Encounters scale, the scientist reached out and asked to visit the set. Spielberg made him a technical advisor. Everyone on the crew read Hynek's book, and Hynek consulted heavily throughout the film to ensure that they got their facts right. Hynek visited Spielberg at the Mobile, Alabama soundstage where much of the film was shot. For weeks, he observed and even earned himself a cameo in the final movie. In an eerie incident one night, the entire crew was rumored to have seen a UFO in the skies above their filming location. But Spielberg himself only caught the end of it. By the time he realized what was happening, the object had vanished. At least, that's the story some crew members tell perhaps in an attempt to further boost the credentials of the movie itself. The film was released in 1977 to positive reactions and significant box office success. It seemed the public was open to the idea of peaceful aliens. But then 1980 arrived and Jimmy Carter lost the presidential election to Ronald Reagan. As the Cold War once again heated up, propagandistic films took aim at extraterrestrial life. Gone was the friendly, gentle interaction between man and gray alien. Perhaps not coincidentally, American tensions with Russia were once again growing hostile, and U.S. media reflected that across the board. Movies like Red Dawn literalized the conflict, depicting a violent communist invasion of the United States. But if Americans were becoming distrustful toward their fellow man, 
The movies suggested that they'd be even less gracious hosts to potential extraterrestrial visitors. The government and Hollywood were ready for a new approach toward alien life, war. Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. For more information on Hollywood's treatment of UFOs, amongst the many sources we used, we found Bruce Rux's Hollywood vs. the Aliens extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll dive into the 80s and Hollywood's sudden aggressive stance toward alien life. Then, we'll dig deeper into some of Rux's claims about government involvement in cinema and decide whether there's any truth to his allegations. You can find more episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Extraterrestrial, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Extraterrestrial on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Extraterrestrial was written by Thomas Dolan Gabbett and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. Extraterrestrial.